Hello and welcome to the Formula Nun podcast, starting from P20. My name is Nikolai and I am a self-declared Formula One expert and I love to share my knowledge and in here with me is Patrick. Why don't you say hello, Patrick? Hello everyone, I know not a lot about Formula One, but I'm very happy to be here and along for the ride. So we have not had a race in the last week and we thought it might be a good opportunity to discuss some of the other times that title rivals have crashed. So if you have been living under a rock for the last two weeks, you won't have known that uh, Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton had a bit of a coming together at the British Grand Prix, but so they did. And there's been a few other times in the history of Formula One that people have come together and it's had some pretty serious consequences. So I thought we'd discuss them. Some of them are quite old. Uh, The oldest one is from 1989. In fact, there's probably a lot older than that, but that's kind of where I stopped because we didn't have forever. So let's crack straight into it. So the ones I want to talk about, I've got five. The first one we're going to talk about is the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix. Now, there was a movie brought out about 10 years ago, I think, called Senna. Have you seen that movie, Patrick? Uh, No, I haven't. I've been looking around for other Formula One films to watch in lieu of the race, but I haven't come across Senna, no. I highly recommend I highly recommend you watch the movie. It is very good. Noted. Okay. The movie is, or it's actually like a documentary, is based on Ayrton Senna, who was a Brazilian Formula One driver who was sadly killed in 1994 in a Formula One race. And he is probably has a legacy as one of the most well-known Formula One drivers. He was a fierce rival on track. And him and another guy, a French guy called Alain Prost, were uh, the two fierce rivals and they had several comings together and falling out and whatnot and it made Formula One to be well it was a very interesting story anyway so the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix I'll give a little bit of context in 1998 1988 sorry Ayat and Senna joined McLaren with Alain Prost and they had the most dominant car that well, Formula One has ever seen. And it still stands that simply due to their win rate that season. So they won 15 out of the 16 races in 1988. Wow. Yeah. And the one race they didn't win, Alain Prost retired with an engine failure and Etten Senna crashed into a back marker a few laps from the end. So is this McLaren, the team winning or Al- oh, Senna and Prost both winning, like both uh, P1 and uh, P2? Both. Yeah, they both are. Well, they both... The team won, so they won every race or 15 races. Right. Um, they weren't P1 and P2 because, well, back then, uh, reliability is not what it is today. Right, okay. So um, it was very much more common for cars to fail, fail to finish the race. Um, but it was, yeah, I'd say you'd say Mercedes have probably matched them now in terms of dominance in some respects, but they have I not... I was going to ask that. Yeah, but they have not matched them in terms of win... Uh, ratio in a season got it the way the race that they didn't win was the italian grand prix it was just after enzo ferrari had passed away and ferrari managed to win the race so you can imagine that that was a pretty massive deal because the italians are somewhat nutty for ferrari so in the 1988 season um ayrton senna won that championship and they all seemed to get along fine. And the 1989 season, things started to get a bit difficult between them. They had a bit of a breakdown in their relationship. And by the time we got to the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix, Alain Prost was ahead in the championship. They were racing. They were not too far from the end. And Ayrton Senna was catching Prost, who was leading. He caught him at a chicane and they ran into each other. They smashed into each other. And Prost immediately got out of his car, assuming that he'd won the championship because he was ahead on points when they crashed. Senna managed to get some marshals to push his car and he got it restarted. 
and he ran around and completed the race and would have won the championship except he was disqualified for cutting the chicane and that proved to be very very acrimonious there was a lot that went down and uh yeah it was it was a huge deal at the time so take what happened with hamilton and verstappen and times it by a couple of at least in terms of what a big deal it was and thankfully we didn't have twitter back then so we didn't have to worry about the internet backlash so the only reason prost won is because senna was disqualified had he not been disqualified senna would have won is that right senna would have won the championship oh. had prost not been uh had senna not been yes and uh it does not go without noting that the president of the fia at the time was uh, a frenchman mm -hmm. um, whether it had any bearing or not i wouldn't say it's one of those things that's become an urban legend now like you you can't really some some of the truth and the the myth is hard to separate do you think he crashed on purpose nick what do you think no they did not crash on purpose um I, in my mind i think senna always argued that prost did but i don't think so um okay. i think prost had a lot less to lose by them crashing but i don't think they crashed on purpose i'm going to ask you that question for every crash we discuss about today just because yes, i want to well, know i can tell you something about the next few is that it gets a bit, bit more interesting so let's get stuck in let's go a whole year forward so at the end of 1989 alan prost left mclaren for ferrari and they had another battle in the championship this time, of course, Senna was leading the championship when they got to the Japanese Grand Prix. Etten Senna took pole and was put on the dirty side of the grid. So just uh, for, for you may not be aware, there's normally a clean and dirty side of the grid of the track. The line that the cars normally follow, the racing line, is the clean side of the track. And the one that they don't normally go on tends to be very dusty and slippery. Mm, okay. So you want to be on the line that the cars normally go on. And normally that's where pole position is. For whatever reason, this year, pole position was on the other side. Oh. Senna asked for it to be moved. He was denied. And he pretty much said, well, I'm going to take Prost out at the first corner then if he gets ahead of me. Wow. So the race started. Prost got ahead of Senna at the first corner. And Patrick, you won't believe what happened. No. But Senna took Prost out at the first corner. Oh, crashed shocking. into him deliberately, took them both out, and won the championship. <laughs> Wait, uh, so... So you can imagine... So Senna knew <laughs> yeah. that if he did, he would win. Yes, he did. That's shocking. And he was not disqualified. Oh, my lord. And it was called a racing incident, and Senna took the championship this year, that year. Some people sort of speculated that it was almost like a payback for his unjust penalty the year before. Mm. But when we talk about the history of Formula One, and in particular, these two drivers, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost, you can begin to understand just what a rivalry they had. And Senna very much had a win win or die attitude right uh, win or die is probably the wrong <laughs> this, term yeah. in this case win or bust attitude mm. um towards his racing uh so that was the two involving uh prost and senna so very 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 tense very interesting stuff if we move on four years um, to sorry patrick are there any rules now that have been introduced around this like is it still possible say if max is ahead by 10 points to take out himself and hamilton to ensure the win is that possible? Uh, they are much more robust okay, now good. with how they deal with these kinds of situations. Because this yeah. seems incredibly broken as a rule system. Yes, uh, it was. Formula One was a different place back then. So Formula One really didn't become the mas massive global sport it is now until the late '90s, early 2000s. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So it had. They used to do a lot more. I guess you would call it slightly corrupt things. Mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. 
So if we move on to the 1994 Australian Grand Prix, so this was again the last race, I'm pretty sure, of the season, 1994. Actually, that was the year that Ayrton Senna had died. And his teammate Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher, a guy you may have heard of, oh, were... Uh, <laughs> were are you serious? No, I'm joking. They're going to know who he is. <laughs> uh, they were competing in the championship and it got to the last race. Schumacher was ahead at the, on the streets of Adelaide. Hill was chasing him hard and forced him into a mistake. Schumacher hit the wall. Hill came to go past him and Schumacher drove into him, turned into him and damaged Hill's car sufficiently that Hill had to retire. Schumacher had to retire as well. They were both out of the race and Schumacher won the championship. Wow. Uh, now... The Schumacher has always maintained that it was a racing incident that he mm. did not mean to turn into him. If you see the video footage, and probably after this you'll go and have a look on YouTube, I will. you'll see that uh, it looks very much deliberate. Right. Um, like turning at the steering Damon wheel towards Hill. Hill. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, straight in. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty hard to argue that it's not deliberate. But again, they couldn't find the evidence to say it was deliberate. I imagine as well that... Um, you know, Formula One had had a bad year in terms of deaths. Actually, the race that Ayrton Senna died at, another d driver died at as well. I was going to They ask. almost lost. Yeah, yeah. They almost lost two more drivers that year. Um, so, I think there was a, a a keenness to keep themselves out of the limelight and just get it over and done with. Right. So Senna died racing. Senna died racing. Yes, right. he died at Imola. Um, in, yeah, in 1994 and um, on the outside of the first corner at Imola uh, I guess it's the first corner maybe it's the second corner technically called Tamburello there's a statue of Imola of Ayrton Senna where he died wow. it's like I say I, I highly recommend it to yourself or any new Formula 1 fan that doesn't know about Ayrton Senna the documentary movie is really fantastic it's absolutely worth watching uh, really gets you in the feels as well mm. Uh, so we're going to jump forward three years now to the 1997 Jerez Grand Prix. Again, it was a championship decider. Now, there's a real notable interesting thing here. In this race, the top three drivers all set the same exact same lap time in qualifying to this to thousandth of a second. Right. Thousandth of a yeah. How? Yeah, I know. It seems unbelievable. That seems, yeah, very implausible. No, well, I guess it, it's only happened once to my knowledge. Um, it, it, occasionally, drivers will set the exact same lap time. It does happen from time to time. Very, very rare, but as in only happen once for the top three. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. And that sort of sums up a, a dramatic year of Formula One, really. Wow. Okay. Fair enough. So, again, we had Michael Schumacher racing a Canadian called Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, Jacques Villeneuve was ahead in the championship, but not by much. So, basically, the way it worked is that Villeneuve needed to finish ahead of Schumacher or Schumacher needed to finish ahead of Villeneuve for either of them to win the championship. Right. So Schumacher took the lead off the start and got away a little bit. Over time, Jacques Villeneuve caught him and then went to pass him. As he went to pass him, Michael Schumacher again turned in uh -huh. to hit Jacques Villeneuve. This time, he didn't take him out. He bounced off his car and went off into the gravel. So Schumacher retired. And Villeneuve carried on to finish third. I think he finished in the race and to take the championship. Mm. Do you think so Schumacher was deliberate this time as well or not? A hundred percent. There is absolutely no doubt. I believe he even might have owned up to this one. Wow. Because there was such an outroar um, that, yeah, he owned up to. Yeah, that's pretty poor. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's 
pretty interesting. So, and I want to get on to a little bit of discussion about the psychology of that after I've got one more to go and then let's talk a little bit about about that psychology okay. and level of it. But as you can see, if you look at all of those, while it seemed like a big deal that Hamilton took the step and out, when you're in context of other incidents, it's actually it's a little small. bit minor almost. Yeah, yeah, it's not a championship decider. It happened you know, midway not through yet. a season. It's Not yet, yeah. but, but that doesn't mean it isn't. And that's but, the, it, but it's also very different because it wasn't like, you know, a, a clear thing that Hamilton gets the advantage of to take the lead, you know? Like, I'm, I'm trying to fight for Hamilton's corner here. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I, I agree. Um, and, I'm yeah. not, and I'm not um, I'm not probably interested in talking about the, the blames. Um, cool. yeah, I, I'm more interested in the in the whys, how, like, mm. how it happens and that kind of thing. So we'll move on to the last one and a couple more familiar names here for you. So 2016, the Spanish Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg were in the very dominant Mercedes that year. They were started side by side. It was also notable to be the Red Bull debut of a certain young Max Verstappen. So he'd already raced for uh, the Toro Rosso team, as they were then, and he was asked to join Red Bull midway through the season to, to take his seat. They started side by side, Rosberg and Hamilton. Hamilton, like Rosberg, got away into the lead around the first corner. They pulled around into the third corner, down the straight, and Rosberg made a mistake in choosing his engine mode on the steering wheel. Hamilton started to catch up towards him, and Rosberg squeezed him onto the inside. Hamilton went onto the grass, spun out, and took both of them out. So both Mercedes out on the first lap of the race, taking each other out, and you'll never guess, well, have a guess who might have won that race. I'm going to say Max Verstappen, given you mentioned his name. Is that right? Max, Yes, Max Verstappen won Mm. that race on his Red Bull debut very um, good yeah unbelievable uh, the start of the wonder child yes exactly that was really this really the proper start of max verstappen being considered a real a real potential champion i think so i said i want to talk about a bit of the psychology of it obviously that last one i wouldn't call deliberate of all of them i'd say it was it was it was not deliberate at all it was simply that hamilton got on the grass and couldn't stop his car and spun into them but can you think of any other circumstances in other sports or, or in life in general where that kind of behavior might be tolerated? Because I guess you could argue that it was tolerated for a time. I mean, I, I don't work in corporate finance, but I'm going to say there must be people out there who, like, you know, step on each other to get to the top. And that's probably, you know, best man wins kind of scenario, dog which is despicable. Dog. But yeah, dog eat dog, you've got to get to the top. Yeah, and I'd say that most of Formula One drivers are driven by that desire to win above all else. And I think that Ayrton Senna was really, I guess you'd call the pioneer of that blatant win at all costs. And Michael Schumacher looked up to that and became that Mm. himself. And then um, you could actually argue that Sebastian Vettel had a lot of that mentality as well. Sebastian Vettel willfully disobeyed team orders to to take a race win in 2013 or something like that and there's been other incidents so i think you could say that he's picked up from that as well but i can't think of any other sport where i've seen a team or 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 person sports person be so desperate that they'd be willing to sink to those levels neither i think it speaks to the stakes of formula one the high stakes nature of formula one well i want to know about that because what drives the driver to aha drives the driver what drives the driver to want to do that? Like, is there a lot of money in the win? Or do you think it's just the egotistical side of them that wants to be the best? It's not the money. It's purely the desire to win. You sure? I think. And, and Formula One is unequivocally, and it's one of the few sports, I guess, where you could argue that it is actually 
you know, it's the top drivers who have proven themselves over time. Everybody right. is a, who's a racing driver, if they're capable, they want to get to Formula One because it is really, you can't beat it or match it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in how all that works. And we've seen other incidents where um, football milking penalties, you know, is, is something that Steve has suggested that. And I guess that could be, could be one of them. I guess it's very difficult to prove milking penalties. That could be that could be another one. But I, even then, I think milking penalties. This would be more like Maradona's hand of God. You know, like yeah. that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Or you know, like a a football player deliberately taking another player out to you know to secure the win to stop him from getting a goal or something like that. Yeah. There's very few parallels in I'm my mind. Trying very, to think very of few. the like because in Formula One, if you manage to take somebody's out, like they're out for a day if not the weekend depending on how much damage you do to the car or them i'm, I'm thinking of things which aren't motorsport and i can't think of any that have that higher stake like if things go wrong they go really wrong i think that's part of what draws me to formula one as well is that the stakes are so high and when something like that happens there's no undoing it there's no yeah. number of penalties or anything like that that can undo the fact that the driver who is out is out yeah you can't reset play and start again no, mm. no. And it's not tolerated. I, I mean, now I would say that this isn't tolerated, but then you could still argue it's not that long ago that we had drivers parking cars on their qualifying laps, you know, to, to make sure they got pulled, though that was punished. It yeah. seems like times have changed a little bit, but when you look back in the history of Formula One, 100%, the stuff is known and not punished. Ayrton Senna in 1990 told everyone what he was going to do, and he owned up to it afterwards, and he managed to keep his championship. I mean, do you think there's some complicitness from the teams? Because say, imagine you're the team principal and you have the best driver and he says he's going to do one of these things. You don't want to have to lose him because he's acting, you know, irrationally and is going to endanger people. Like he is your gold dust. Yes, I would agree with that. And look, I'd, I'd have to tell you as well, I think you'll find that some of these team principals is just as heavily driven to win as the drivers are. Michael, have you seen my email? Yes, yes, Mr. Mr. Wolf, yeah. Mr. Mr. Email Wolf. Because I mean, they do. They will fight for their drivers to continue in a race, right? Like they want 100%. them to keep going, and they're perhaps more invested because they've got to keep the team up. Yep, that's right. They are, you know, they are the leader of the team, and that's why you see Christian Horner and Toto Wolf doing what they do. They may not even believe what they're doing, you know, but they're playing the. They, they're they've got the to play the game to to make sure that their team does the absolute best they can. So. Yeah, really, I guess, you know, you talk about corporate finance. I think that's probably the other aerial dog-eat-dog dog that you talk about. And and like Steve's just mentioned, you know, any team principal will do what they can to win, including breaking the rules if they think they can get away with it. Yeah. And they they absolutely will, and they have done in the past, and there's been plenty of very naughty car designs and stuff like that, that, you know, they have to be approved by team principals. I talked to you either in the last podcast or the podcast before about Flavio Briatore running the Renault team and organizing for one of his cars to crash so that the other one could win the race. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's the kind of level we're looking at. It's, uh, yeah, it's, and like I say, this is one of the things that really makes me love Formula One, I think, is even though it's, you know, it's despicable and it's dirty, the fact that people want to win that badly makes me very invested in that thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's contagious, right? Yeah, especially to someone you know like myself. Like I'm not a win at all costs kind of person. Don't get me wrong, I like to win, but I'm not a win at all cost person. And I find that mentality quite fascinating. Yeah, it's it's the other mindset of how to go. Like, I mean, they are the best in the world, so they have that drive which is different from us mere mortals. They've been doing it for their entire life. But yeah, to see someone so engaged 
for so long. Like Vettel is still yeah. driving after how many years? Same with yeah. um, Nick uh, Raikkonen. Raikkonen, that's right. Raikkonen has been around since two thousand and three, though he two thousand and one. Sorry, though he took a small break, but it doesn't really matter. He's still been driving for a very long time. And actually, on that, I think I'd be quite happy to argue that Lewis Hamilton is one of the cleanest drivers, fairest drivers. Um, in the sport considering how long he's been in there I think it's been a very long time since I've seen him do something you know that I would call a bit naughty like he mm. generally tries to be absolutely as fair as he can be and you have to admire him for that for the amount of time he's been in here and the level of success that he's had it's it is quite impressive there's a very nerdy thing we could do here where you could rate the driver's average goodness by taking the amount of points on their license every year and then adding them up and dividing them by the total years driving and find out how good they were. That's a really interesting idea, actually. I the system hasn't been around long enough to do that yet, but I don't uh, think we're that far away from being able to... I'm trying to think how long the system's been around for. That's actually a really interesting metric, Patrick. I'm going to note that should... for next podcast. I'm going to come yep, back with a figure. Let's start measuring it. Let's yep, start okay. measuring it. Let's talk about it. Patrick's weekly know... goodness score. Yeah, I, I'm I'm almost positive that we'll be able to go back through the relatively short history and find the points that people have got as they've gotten them. And yep, I, I really like this. Patrick's weekly goodness score. This might be my, this will probably be my favorite segment on the podcast. If, uh, okay, if I'm I'll, I'll try and keep it private from you and then you can react each time. Okay, okay, um, that sounds good. I can help I, you find the data if you want. Oh, that'd be great. I do have a question about this, um, kind of in relation to crashing, but this is what we'd call just crashing. What are the rules on being inebriated and driving in Formula That's One? That's a really good question. I would imagine there's a zero tolerance because the FIA is very tied up in road safety. Right. I don't know if it's actually written down anywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wonder because I'm sure these people will party hard. Like, they must just go crazy on the weekends when they win or lose. But what happens if, like, you know, you're in qualifying, you get pole for the first time, you know, you might want to go and celebrate that night how much can you drink prior? Do they get drug tests? Do you have a team who's like breathalyzing you before you get in the car to make sure you're meeting the FAA's compliance? You know, what's happening? But being an international sport, um, I would be almost 100% sure that they are randomly drug tested. And look, to be honest, I think the days of drivers going out and getting plastered on a Saturday night are probably long gone. Um, I think the level of professionalism that is expected from these guys and the understanding that one bad weekend could cost them their, their race, their, their seat, I don't think they'd dream of it. They're too, mm. they're too highly, yeah, and, and uh, you know, as Steve's pointed out, I don't think most athletes would do that these days. Now, at the end of the race, there might be a different story. There's actually some really good pictures of Michael Schumacher after he won his sixth world championship, mm -hmm. and he's was a Ferrari driver. He's got an unbuttoned Toyota shirt on, a massive cigar in his mouth, <laughs> and doing something, I can't remember what he's doing with a forklift, you know? So yeah. they certainly let their hair down at the end of races, and Raikkonen was well known for being a party, a bit of a party animal. Yeah. But yeah, like I think those times are just gone now. Like I honestly think that they just couldn't afford to. And, and and that's not exclusive to Steve's point. That's not exclusive to Formula One. No, no. I just think the stakes are too high now. Um, you look at, I don't know if you if you follow cricket at all, but we've had a couple of cricketers be basically told that they're not welcome in the international team because of their habits. And it became too big. And they basically were told, you are letting the team down. And as such, you are not welcome in our team. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess times have changed. Um, now, you, it, if we want to talk about Formula One movies, it might be worth watching the movie Rush, 
Rush is about Nicky Lauda, who was ah, um, yeah, an important this. person for the Mercedes team. Yeah, and James Hunt. Now, James Hunt was a notorious, notorious party animal. Right. Um, this was 40, 50 years ago now. But yeah, if, you, if, you know, if you're interested in that side of things. But no, I'm not sure if there's strict rules around it, but I'm 100% sure that they'll get drug tested because okay. they could be performing enhancing drugs. Like The Formula One drivers run at a... At, an Olympic athlete level of fitness. Yeah. Because the cars are very, very hard to drive in terms of the the impact on your body from all the G-forces and stuff like that. And the concentration, it really comes down to the concentration required over such a long period of time that they need to be in peak physical fitness so that their mind doesn't wander. Yeah. I'm just thinking if there was one drug that you'd want to take for Formula One, surely it'd be speed. <laughs> well that would make sense uh in some ways i guess <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i, I mean you see the, you, any good. you see them with their performance coaches and trainers like they're constantly conditioning their bodies to deal with the car yeah it's pretty amazing actually so how much uh time they spend training and then on top of that uh their nutrition and everything like that what a random question that just came to mind yes. as we we're in the end of the podcast where is alex alwyn what's happened to him Alex Albon is racing in DTM. I think he's done a test in Formula E. Red Bull have basically tried to do the nice thing and hold him off to the side in case Sergio Perez didn't work out in my mind. Now, Sergio Perez has worked out. I think he's he's clearly shown that he has been better than um, Pierre Gasly and Albon were in the Red Bull Mm. seat. Now, I don't believe that Sergio Perez is a better driver than Pierre Gasly. Okay. But I do think that Pierre Gasly struggled so much in that Red Bull seat, there's no chance he gets another go in there, and he probably right. doesn't want to. Yeah, I mean, the pressure seemed incredibly high. That's right. The pressure to compete with Max Verstappen is incredibly high, and that team is Verstappen's team. Yeah. Sergio Perez knows knows he's not there to win a championship. He's there to do the best he can and to support Max Verstappen to win a championship. I don't think Pierre Gasly would accept that. And right. Albon, unfortunately, didn't perform. He, they gave him a longer chance than they gave uh, Gasly. I think they learned a bit of a lesson with Gasly mm. about giving the drivers a bit longer at it. I think Albon will stay in the Red Bull arena for a long time because I think he fits well in there. I think it's very unlikely that we'll see Albon driving another Formula 1 car in a race again. What is DTM? Some kind of catastrophic. DTM is the uh, German Touring Car Championship. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So right. it's quite a uh, high-profile championship, and the cars are quite fast as far as touring cars go. So yeah, yeah quite a high-profile championship, and and that's where he's ended up. And like I say, I don't I don't see him moving on from there. When you look at some of the quality right now that isn't getting into Formula One, I just don't see Albon coming back. Mm-hmm. It's very rare for drivers to get to get to come back too, unless they were re- quite successful, unless they were Fernando Alonso or Kimi Raikkonen. They don't normally get a second chance. Yeah, they'll get overtaken pretty quickly by the younger drivers. Yeah, there does seem to be quite a, a surge of young drivers coming in. Maybe that's because that is just like an era shift. Like the older drivers have served their time and have moved on. But it does seem like there's a, you know, the younger drivers are outperforming the older drivers, at least to my untrained eye. There certainly, there certainly are. Um, and I guess it's getting to that point, you know, to, to what you said. Hamilton is, is nearing the end of his career. Kimi Raikkonen is nearing the end of his career. Mm. Fernando Alonso is nearing the end of his career. You're talking at least, you know, about three drivers, about a, a, a three-driver hole that's going to open up in Formula One. Yeah, and Russell is going to fill it in Mercedes. I, yep, I'm, I, I, remain, I remain quite surprised that we have not yet seen that declared uh, officially, but I'm 
I'm still very, very certain that it's going to happen. I hope so. All right, on that note, we've hit the 30-minute mark. It seems like a perfect time to stop for our little trip down memory lane for Formula One and discussion on crashing and or dirty behavior, I guess. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to hand off to Patrick to say goodbye now. See you, everyone. Happily, next time we talk to you, there'll be a Grand Prix again. Yes, Hungarian Grand Prix in a week's time. I will say goodbye as well. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time here on Formula None.